0: All right, take your Bibles, turn to the book of Hosea, chapter 11, Hosea 11. Uh, We have seen the book of Hosea through multiple lenses. Uh, We've seen it through a marriage lens of how a spouse might feel if they had a partner who was unfaithful for an extended period of time. The book looks at it through that lens. We have seen the book through a parenting lens, uh, where you might have a wayward child, and how does a father deal with a wayward child? Uh, These two familial lenses help us to understand things of Israel and God uh, from a more of a human level. But we've also looked at it through a theological lens, And this helps us to understand the tension between God's judgment and then his grace toward his people. Now, while it's not explicitly uh, given, we see an illustration or an expression of two different covenants throughout the book. For instance, we see the Abrahamic covenant made with Israel, and then 430 years later, we see vestiges of the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, much of the consternation that I think honest people have about the Old Testament and about God you know, judging what many deem as so harshly, I think is understood in the context of these two covenants. And they're often misunderstood, there's often confusion, and often rejection of the Old Testament, or outright rejection of God himself because people have not interpreted things through these two covenants. So what we know is that God has made an irreversible promise to Abraham. He said in Genesis 22, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. So, God promises Israel that they would be his people. Now, you might remember that the Abrahamic covenant was dependent on what parties? One, not two parties, all right? In the Mosaic covenant, there are two parties involved. There was God, and then who was be obligated to either bless or curse Israel, who was obligated to obey Israel, the items under the Mosaic covenant. If you disobey God, you're gonna suffer consequences. The Abrahamic covenant was different, all right? It was a promise made by God alone to his people. This is important to understand. Galatians 3.15 says, to give a human example, brothers, Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. This is saying that God is not going to change his promise, including even after he gave the Mosaic law 430 years later. When God talks about who is responsible to keep the Abrahamic covenant, he says in Galatians that in other covenants, such as the Mosaic covenant, There are mediators where both parties are involved, but in the Abrahamic covenant, there is no mediator, all right? Because Galatians 3.20 says, now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. There's no need for a mediator when there's only one party involved, and that is God who has made the promise to his people that you are my people, right? Right? Uh, the covenant was unconditional, and the obligation lay with God himself in the Abrahamic covenant. So it's irreversible. God is the only one responsible. That's not like the Mosaic covenant. God made a covenant to love his people, to keep his promise, to be his family members. That's the Abrahamic covenant. And his, that Abrahamic covenant is so that we can enjoy the safety and the security of being in a relationship with him, all right? This kind of grace is frankly too much for a lot of religious people to get into because they want to throw in a little Mosaic Covenant into that. They want to throw in a little legalism because, you know, I got to be able to do something to keep my relationship with God or else, you know, God's going to throw me out. And so actually some of our religious training gets in the way of understanding this these promises with the abrahamic covenant it's just too much let's throw in some codes for people to keep them in line right i mean there are people who still want to live under the mosaic covenant and paul had to write in galatians say hey wait 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 why are you wanting to go back to this we're no longer in this galatians 329 says and if you belong to christ you are abraham's offspring heirs according to promise you're hooked in to the Abrahamic covenant. Not the Mosaic, the Mosaic is gone. The Abrahamic covenant was the promise of God to be his people. The Mosaic covenant was the instructions for how Israel was to live as God's people, which is no longer in operation. But the book of Hosea is also about the Mosaic covenant even though it's no longer in force our day. So we inherit the Abrahamic covenant, not the Mosaic. The Mosaic covenant had a law and blessing agreement. This was what the ceremonial, the moral, and the sacrificial law. You obey the law, you'll be blessed. You disobey the law, there are going to be consequences. The covenant said this, see, I am setting before you today A blessing and a curse. Again, Mosaic law. The blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God. But turn aside from the way that I'm commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. Now, consequences of disobeying this law were apparent within the Old Testament. And I should say, consequences for the Christian today are also apparent. If there's any similarity, it's that there's still consequences for sin. God is not, you know, going to have consequences for sin in the Old Testament, but no consequences in the New. That's not the case. God's nature hasn't changed. And you might remember that in the midst of the Old Testament system, God created these sacrifices that were to look forward to the ultimate sacrifice in Christ, but these sacrifices would pay the penalty for sin, or I should say, not necessarily pay the penalty, but postpone the need for any more sacrifices until the following year. But now, what do we have? Now what we have is Christ. Christ who took upon himself our curse and punishment. Hebrews 10, 12 says, Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice For sins. So you have the Abrahamic covenant, promises good, still apply to us, gonna be his people. Mosaic covenant, Old Testament, Israel, not in operation today. But we still have consequences for sin today. There's still, I think, a misunderstanding in this aspect as well with our relationship with God, that when we sin today, particularly when we have a lot of unrepentant sin, rebellious sin, we lose fellowship with God. Still, we still have the connection, we have the relationship with God, but we don't have the closeness. That's what I mean by fellowship with God. That changes. Uh, so in other words, you know, I can be married to my wife, nothing changes that, but you, know, you can have a week where things aren't going well, or a day, or whatever. Okay? Fellowship might be lost, but you still have the relationship. right? So it's the same with God. You have the relationship intact, Abrahamic covenant, God promised us to be be his people, Uh, sacrifice of Christ, paying the all-time price for sin, all that's good. But fellowship can be broken with a rebellious people. These intense consequences we also read about in Hosea, uh, where God is trying to get Israel to repent, to come back into fellowship, close relationship, right? he wants that to be restored. The Abrahamic covenant is still in force, but the fellowship has been hampered. Again, this is a tension that many Christians have a hard time understanding, managing today, as some will say, for instance, you're going to lose your salvation, as if the Abrahamic covenant is nullified. You might lose it, If we were a part of the deal, but we're not a part of the deal. The covenant was only God making the promise to his people. It's not contingent upon us. So the Abrahamic covenant is still good. God did not nullify his promise. Others will say, well, when you sin, that obviously shows you weren't a Christian in the first place. Of course, you always have to get people to define, well, how much sin exactly? What types of sin do you have to commit? And, you know, in my mind, other than blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, I'm wondering, what sin have Christians not committed, right? I've seen Christians commit all kinds of sin. Now, the question is whether you're going to grow from that, whether you're going to repent or that if you're truly a Christian. I don't know every person who's a Christian or not, and neither do you. And so it's not our job to determine that. God will determine that. And certainly there are people who claim to be a Christian and aren't, but All you can do is preach the truth and trust that they'll come into repentance. That's something for God to decide. But the point is, is that just because you sin as a Christian, it doesn't mean it nullifies the Abrahamic covenant. It doesn't nullify your relationship with God just because you sin. 1 John 1 says that all of us sin. So are we going to repent of that sin and have the fellowship restored, right? Right? Now, even though the Mosaic law is not in operation today, we are still responsible to live under God's authority that, and still live under his moral, to, moral imperatives. All right, The Mosaic law may not be in place, but God still exists. Uh, there are still scriptural imperatives that we are to live by. We're still responsible to live under those and to live under the two greatest commandments that all of the law fits under. One of those commandments, love God with all your heart and love other people. All of the law fit under those two things. And we still have consequences for our sin today, right? We have even eternal consequences for our sin as a Christian in the sense of rewards that we'll get or not get based on our obedience. And then we have consequences here in this life, in terms of discipline with God. So the idea that people say, well, you know, when you say that God keeps his promise to keep a Christian, you know, you're saying people can get away with sin. Oh, I don't know who you're listening to, but I never said that. And I think anybody who teaches the whole counsel of God isn't going to say that. There are still consequences for sin, but I don't lose the relationship. I'm not going to jerk, God's not going to jerk the relationship out from us, okay? So, Hosea is a book that exemplifies these two covenants in action. Mosaic law, okay, you got something coming, Israel, all right? And then there's the Abrahamic covenant where God is saying, I'm still going to keep my promise. And so, if we learn anything from the book of, of Hosea, it's this that we live our life before God with a healthy fear, right? There is a healthy fear of God, that we are living within his presence daily. I remember when I was in the business world, I was managing a store here in town. The owner of the company would often fly in on his jet unannounced. Sometimes we'd get tips that he was coming if somebody found out and said, hey, the owner's coming. So if you knew the owner was coming, You know, you wanted to spiff everything up at the store, have everything looking just right, and, you know, have everything looking good. Well, with the Lord, He's always there. (laughs) He's always here. He's always present, right? And so uh, I always want my life to be pleasing to Him because He has full knowledge of everything that's going on, all right? So we live with this fear of God. And when I sin... It's usually when I'm walking independent I'm not thinking in terms of that fear of God or I'm not believing God to be a good God and various other things but my knowledge of God is hampered and so then we sin just like Adam and Eve Satan talked you know to Adam and Eve it's like hey, you know God didn't really mean that but wait a minute he really did mean that you eat this consequences are going to happen no consequences aren't going to happen it's going to be better for you if you do these things and how many of us, when we sin, we think, life's going to be better when we do this. God didn't know what he was talking about. God's really not going to come through on these consequences, right? And so we get deceived. But there are consequences, right? And God's eyes are not closed. He knows exactly what's going on. And we certainly see that with the people of Israel, and we see that in our lives as well. So that's just the introduction. We've got another two hours to go, and I'm going to finish these three verses. All right? Let's stand as we look at Hosea 11. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zebuim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man. The Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Now, remember, when we talk about Ephraim, we are talking about the northern kingdom of Israel, okay? Being one of the tribes that's synonymous with Israel. And we've also talked about that you have these familial examples. And so it's kind of like a father who is at his wit's end in dealing with a wayward son. God has this tension resolving his compassion for Israel and also the punishment demanded by their sin. This is not just a little crossing the line. Remember, they were worshiping idols. I mean, if there's anything that God hated, it's like worshiping another God, that's got to be on the list. And they did it continually. And they were rebellious. They didn't care what God had to say. And delving themselves into immorality, knowing it was wrong, continuing, no repentance, right? And so it's not like God has self-doubt about what he's going to do when he says these things. Rather, I think we are allowed to peek into the pain that God experiences when his people sin, particularly at this level. Israel deserves severe consequences for idol worship, for immorality, for complete disregard for God. However, because of the Abrahamic covenant and God's inability to break a promise, he could not hand Israel over to be destroyed like Adma and Zebuim. These were cities in the plain when Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. So in other words, you deserve total annihilation, but I'm not gonna do it. So God's heart is troubled and his compassion is kindled for Israel. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will come in wrath. So, by Ephraim, he's speaking of in the region of Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm not going to do that. If God were to act completely out of his anger, Israel would be destroyed. And if God were a man, it would be tit for tat. You deserved it, you're getting it, you made your bed, lie in it. How many times have we said that? Right? He's not going to give Israel what they deserve. He's not going to act purely in his wrath. He acted as God, not motivated out of emotion, which many of us do. But he was going to act consistent with his divine character. I will not come to wrath. It does not mean that Ephraim is going to escape punishment. Rather, it means that Yahweh will not give full vent to his fury as he did in the case of Sodom. We read in Numbers, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind as he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? So man is known to change his mind, to act emotionally, but God's covenant with Abraham is unconditional. It will not change. Therefore, the nation of Israel is preserved. And who else is preserved? Who else inherits that promise? We do. We inherit the same promise, right? Now, see, people think, man, you know, when, uh, when you tell that to people, man, They're just going to go hog wild, like the prodigal son. Well, I'm not saying there aren't people like that. But when you think about this, and you understand the love that God has for you, it actually draws you in relationship to him. Because when you know that kind of love that a parent has, what's the thing you don't want to do? You do not want to disappoint your parents, right? when you understand that love and you understand their feeling towards you. Not that we're sinless, but the motivation is out of love. And so that promise, instead of promoting sin, I think promotes holiness at a healthy relational level. And that feeling that God has toward us is not going to change. But the Mosaic covenant with Israel at Sinai, it's different. It had conditions attached. And Israel was still under the Mosaic Covenant, right? In other words, if the people failed to meet certain conditions, God was obligated to what? Have consequences, right? He would withdraw his blessings. Israel's possession of the land uh, to, or uh, to be his people was based upon Abraham's covenant. But their enjoyment of the land and blessing is based on the Mosaic covenant. Now, God is not faithful to his promises because we deserve it. He is faithful because he's God. He's the holy one in our midst. He has a divine nature. He's different than human beings. The holiness of God is the foundation of God's attributes, the cornerstone of our hope. I have hope, because I know the kind of God that I believe in, that he keeps his promise, he's a holy God. God is not schizophrenic. God does not have multiple personalities. His nature is merciful and just at the same time. Hosea pursues a similar argument in verse 9, and we find this exhibited also in Leviticus 26. It says, yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies... I will not spurn them. Neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them for I am the Lord their God. Well, listen. We read the first 10 chapters and it sure sounded like God was going to lower the boom on Israel. And he is. And he did. Right? But, and that was well deserved. They rejected God. Uh, They worshiped idols, the depth of their sin was deserving of a capital punishment. In fact, let me read you some under the Mosaic covenant, some of the things deserving of death. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. So if we're living under the Mosaic law, I would be willing to bet there'd be far less people living in the United States. You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep in which is a blemish, any defect whatever, for that is an abomination to the Lord your God. If there is found among you within any of your towns that the Lord your God has given you, a man or woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshiped them or the sun, or the moon, or any other host of heaven, which I have forbidden, and has told you, and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. And if it's true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. You worship another God in Israel, you are to be stoned. These are Mosaic law prescriptions, Right? Now, we are not living under the Mosaic law. Just like I said, people talk about all the time. Well, you know, doesn't the Mosaic law say you got to wear, you know, certain uh, uh, clothing and can't eat shrimp? Why don't Christians do that? Well, dude, we're not under the Mosaic law. So people say these things ignorantly, not understanding the economy that God has us in. The Mosaic law is no longer in force. But there are prescriptions, to the Mosaic law, that Israel was to live under. And if they didn't follow that, certain things were deserving of death. And Israel was guilty of that on multiple counts. Yet the compassionate heart of God prevented him from applying this unrestrained because then nobody would be left. Now, unlike humans who play fast and loose with promises, God was reminded of the Abrahamic covenant and that these are his people. And verse 10 says, and this is speaking in the future. They shall go after the Lord. Now remember earlier it said how they didn't go after the Lord. And here it says, they shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the West. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Now, all through this book, we've heard this reoccurring thing. Verse 7, my people are bent on turning away from me. And then here in verse 10, we learn that there will be a day when that will change. They will one day go after the Lord. Well, how's that going to happen? I mean, is that going to be just because there are some people who have great faith, that by the strength of their will, they're going to be able to change? No, no. It's not going to be without the work of God. The reason any of us turn to God is not because we have stronger faith than others. It's because of God's goodness expressed to us that he hasn't obliterated us from the picture yet when we're just as deserving. We love him because why? He first loved us. God has always initiated the work in our lives, and so he is constantly wooing us, his spirit drawing us. That's always the initiative power. We turn because he calls us clearly, loudly, like a lion. Christ is called the Lion of Judah in Revelation 5.5. When a lion roars, He commands attention. And one day, God will restore Israel. This is future. This is, you know, millennial kingdom kind of stuff. Like birds turned loose from their cages, the people of Israel will return swiftly to their land, and God will return them to their homes. The lost tribes of Israel will one day be restored after the exile. This is Israel's future prophetic hope. Now, the land was God's land, and he chose to have Israel enjoy it by electing them as his people. The assurance of God is not in the performance of Israel, but in the grace and promise keeping of God. God's faithfulness to the covenant will make it so. Now the people, even though they're going to be exiled in Assyria, would know this. They would know that they could be sustained by God and by these promises. And our confidence in our salvation is in the character of God that God has chosen us to be his children and that he's going to keep his promise. Right? Why did he choose us? He's God. It's in the goodness of his will toward us. Now there's one other dimension for this that I think is worth delving into and it applied to Israel as well. That God chose Israel, not just for Israel's sake, but so that Israel would be a testimony to other nations. They were to be an agent of blessing to other nations. One author wrote this, it's as if a group of trapped cave explorers choose one of their number to squeeze through a narrow flooded passage to get out to the surface and call for help. The point of the choice is not so that he alone gets saved, but that he is able to bring help and equipment to ensure the rest get rescued. Election, in such a case, is an instrumental choice for one one, for the sake of the many. So in other words, God is choosing you so that others can hear the testimony of the goodness of God. Here's the Old Testament record about this. And my holy name I will make known in the midst of my people, Israel. And I will not let my holy name be profaned anymore. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. I'm choosing Israel to let it be known to the nations. Isaiah 43, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And my servant whom I have have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. You're my witnesses. And then Galatians 3:14, here's New Testament, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. That's all of us. So that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Wow. So we are the beneficiaries of this saving work of Christ, but our purposes extend to utilizing all that we have for others to enjoy the kingdom. You know, when Janet and I first got married, and I remember this conversation like it was yesterday. I was an intern in a church, but I also had a a full-time job elsewhere. And we had our, it seemed like our lives. We had no kids at the time, but a lot of things pulling at us to get involved in. And we had this conversation, and I said, honey, we can be involved in a lot of things. You know, we've got, you know, business opportunities, we've got this and that. But I think, for us, the kingdom of God has to dictate what we do. It has to be our primary choice. And so the local church is going to get our time to devote in so that we can see the kingdom of God expand are you on board with that? She goes, absolutely. And that has been our life for 41 years. Now, I've not been a pastor all 41 years, but it still was, even then, it was the lion's share of what we wanted to spend our time in. That's where our passions were. That doesn't mean every day the church was open, we spent time in the church. That's not what it means. But it just means we made it a priority, all right? And we, each of us as Christians, we have Hundreds of choices of what to do with our time, our money, our relationships, our possessions, everything, right? Are we going to leverage that for the kingdom of God? Because there is no greater purpose. There is no more fulfilling life that we see God expand his kingdom and he uses you to do it. Is there anything more fulfilling than that? I'd say absolutely not absolutely not. And it's why we at Christ's Community, we are committed to do what it says right there. Equipping and empowering people in their God-given gifts to advance the kingdom of Christ. That is what God is calling us to do, to be witnesses. Now, that doesn't mean you have to hand out a track to everybody you meet. But what it means is you're expressing the love of God whenever you can. You know, we... Uh, you might have a neighbor who's in need. You can't do everything for the neighbor, but there are things that you can do to help them out. There are ways that you can express love. Okay? However, the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, but we're we're listening to the Holy Spirit, allowing him to use us daily. There might be somebody even in line, as you're at Walmart, that you know, the Holy Spirit is whispering to you to maybe Pay for that $10 thing that that single mom maybe can't even afford. I don't know. I'm just saying, whatever the Spirit of God is saying to you in the moment, that is what you do, all right? And we can see the kingdom of God expand. So what do you say? You on board with that? All right, let's pray.